Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cagliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great. It's election day. I yes. went and voted this morning, and I always feel virtuous when I vote. Well, Have I'm, you voted I'm, yet? I'm voting this afternoon. So it took me two minutes. Yes. Okay. Well, that's, that's a, you know this this will be my first time voting in person in Scotland. So I'm looking forward to the mm-hmm. the process of of checking a piece of paper and putting numbers on it's it. It's great. You actually do it with a pencil. With a pencil. You do I'm... it with a pencil and you fold it up and drop it in a box. It's 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 uh it's very kind of it's hipster voting. It's it's analog. <laughs> analog <laughs> analog hipster voting. That that that's a new uh and we probably vote in the same uh, precinct, I'm guessing. I would imagine we, we do. We yes. live around the corner from each other. So, so if you do, on your ballot, and I will not tell you how to vote, and I will not disclo- disclose who I voted for, but one of your options is actually an independent candidate named Bonnie Prince Bob. Bob, yes. Oh, I'm familiar <laughs> with Bonnie Prince Bob. He's, he's run for several things. He's a, an interesting candidate. Um, probably not one I'm going to choose to vote for, but, uh, you know, so be it. Bonnie Prince Bob. Right. Um, I'm not quite sure how to transaction from, from that to our topic, but uh, I think as most of our listeners know, there was a, a major news break uh, earlier this week uh, in uh, publicized in Politico, where they published a leaked uh, draft opinion uh, written by uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito in the Dobbs versus Jackson's women's health case, which uh, in 90-something pages overturns uh, the Supreme Court's decision in 1973 of Roe v. Wade that had uh, legalized abortion. Uh, Alito was joined in this opinion by uh, four other members of the Supreme Court, uh, and this is going to be, I think, a phenomenal. This is obviously a, it's been a headline news since it was leaked uh, earlier this week, and it's going to be arguably one of the most important decisions the Supreme Court has issued in recent history, if not its entire history. Uh, so we want to sort of think about this moment and, and what the leak meant and what it says about the court and what, obviously, there's huge implications for this decision um, and try to unpack because, all Sorry, I don't think you mentioned it because the decision outlines a justification for overturning Roe versus said, Wade. Yes, I think I said that. But right. anyway. Um, and it's very rare for things to leak from the Supreme Court. I think that might be a place to start. The Supreme Court's a very secretive... Of the three branches of governments, the sort of least transparent, the most secretive of, of uh, and most inscrutable of, of American political institutions. Would you think that's about right? I think that's right. Um, on one hand, trying to choose my words carefully, I think the mask has slipped over mm. the past three days, and, and there's been a lot of pearl clutching about the Supreme Court suddenly becoming political, which frankly is nonsense, because the Supreme Court's been political certainly for a good long time. And and there's a lot of nonsense Since around it. John Marshall, it. at least. Yeah, there's a, yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of nonsense around it that it somehow it's above politics and better than the other two mm. branches. And frankly, that's... Bull. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, but, but you're right. There's a huge amount of secrecy around its deliberations. I think um, that's quite deliberate. That's so that the, sorry, deliberate and deliberations. That's a terrible sentence. <laughs> um, but I think that uh, there's a great deal of secrecy around what it does, in part because its members, at least until the past few days, while political, take their responsibilities very seriously and do have a kind of attachment to the institution as mm. an institution. And so leaks like this are pretty unusual, especially a leak of a draft opinion. I mean, David, you've got some information about previous leaks in history, but there aren't many. No, there aren't. There aren't. 
many there well there's in terms of, of uh, draft opinion this is this is i think unprecedented i couldn't find a, a previous case of an a, the the text of of a draft opinion uh being leaked before uh but i think before we get to the leaking one, i want to talk about what a draft opinion is and how these things get drafted because i think people what we read in alito's opinion may not actually be the um end final result so may, i think many listeners may not really know the processes by which how Supreme Court decisions get written. Frank, do you want to sort of talk, talk us through sort of where this is in the life cycle of a Supreme Court decision? Yeah, so, so what tends to happen is, uh, as far as we know, <laughs> Supreme Court, the, 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 the court will hear a case and then the uh, members of the court will deliberate and uh, essentially they vote. Yeah. Uh, or they, they, they try to reach a kind of, cons- not, well, they don't often reach a consensus because these decisions are often um, uh, contested, but they, they vote, and the uh, chief justice normally asks somebody to write the opinion on behalf of the majority. If the chief justice is in the majority. It, right, that's right, that's right, sorry. Uh, that, that's important, especially in this case. Mm. Uh, and then the whichever justice is chosen to write that opinion will share it with their... Uh, the people in with whom they agree and the majority, and they work on a draft. It's not unlike when scholars collaborate on a piece of writing together. And so, so they, they bat it back and forth. And so what's interesting about this, and then of course we also get minority opinions, and you can you can get the minority writing opinions and you, or dissenting opinions. You can get people writing um, opinions individually, but normally drafts like this on behalf of the majority are prepared by the majority and then edited. So this may well not be the final version of this decision. It's giving us a clear indication of how the court is likely to vote on this case. Mm. It seems that there's a 5-4 majority in favor of striking down Roe versus Wade. Yes. Uh, but the content of the of the opinion and the the justification for that decision may well change. That- yeah, and, and just to bring up a, a, a point you mentioned earlier, so so when the chief justice is not in the majority, the, the highest ranking right. justice in, in that's in the majority then assigns the case, and, and the highest ranking justice is would be Clarence Thomas, because he's been on the court the longest. Um, he's had a lot of other issues going on recently, uh, but he assigned it to, to uh, Samuel Alito to, to write. At least that, that's what one's likely to infer. This is the way things usually work in the court, um, but as you know, it tends to vary on who the chief justice is, and and sort of the culture of the court can change in profound ways when, when new members get added. I mean, it should be said that Clarence Thomas has reportedly been quite ill recently, so mm. it's entirely possible because this opinion was written in February, I think. Or? Yeah, so the case was heard in December, yeah. and so the usual sort of timeline it would have been for the decision to be released in June, I believe. Yeah, that's so, right. So this appears to be a early draft of, of, of that opinion. And there's been obviously a huge amount of speculation about who leaked this opinion. Some people say it was a, you know, odds are it was probably, um, you know, one of the clerks of the Supreme Court. But there's Do you been, think? Well, I mean... Well, sorry, sorry. Let, finish that line of thought and then we'll talk about who might have leaked it. Cause I, I mean, one of the things to recognize about sort of this whole writing process is that each of the justices has two or three clerks who help them do research and write opinions and, and are part of the process. They're inside the, the circle. So we have to think about the nine justices, but we also have to think about the 20 to 30 other people who are in the building who have access to this material. 
Um, lots of the leaks in the past that have come from the Supreme Court have come from um, come from clerks. So they and sometimes they may come from clerks with the blessing or the you know silent approval of the person they're working for. So, but uh, well, let's set that guess. aside for a second and just finish the process. So, so in terms of the timeline, so so the the drafting of the opinion happened sometime between December and now. Mm. Uh, but but the, I think the date on the on the document was February. Yeah, wasn't sounds it? right. Yeah. And and uh, and so, but but the decision would come down and be made public or will be in June. So there's still a little bit of negotiating that could be going on. To be sure that the you know that there could be uh, requests by other people who are signing on to the opinion to change various things. Uh, it is. It has happened in the past when when decisions have come down and people actually change their vote at the last minute because they don't agree with the final opinion. That doesn't seem very likely in this case. It seems more about the the how strong an opinion it's going to be that is more likely to change. Um, and I've heard different speculations about whether this is, you know, possibly leaked by a conservative clerk who's trying to push it to be even more conservative opinion or by a clerk who's concerned and trying to make it, you know, there's all kinds of motivations one could Im imply about uh, the motivations of the person behind it. Right. So just to go back to Clarence Thomas briefly. So mm. Clarence Thomas was very ill over the past couple Reason, of months. Yes. And so it may be possible that he wasn't actually in a position to even make that assignment or, or to have written the opinion himself. Mm. And so he, he, Alito would be this next most senior on, on, on that side of this issue because the other there are five votes in favor of this as far as we know. So yes. it was Alito, Thomas, and then the three uh, justices appointed by Donald Trump. Yeah, Gorsuch, uh, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Yeah. Right, and so they're all relatively new. And so Alito is the next most senior of the of these five anyway alito was chosen or chose himself to, mm. to depending on what happened behind the scenes to write this decision um we can talk about the content of the decision in a minute but i mm. want to talk about the leak first um in terms of the motives i mean I, i'm a little I, I wonder whether it was a clerk i know clerks have had leaked in the past but certainly modern supreme court clerkship is such an important career boost for people. Oh, I mean, if, you, sure. if you clerk for a Supreme Court justice, that's your ticket punched. Yeah, and well, and like many of the people who are on the court now previously clerked right. for other people. That's right, so that's right. A... So, and these are young, ambitious people, regardless of their politics. It seems to me to be a huge risk in career terms to mm. leak a decision that's coming out next month anyway. Right? So, to so be I, sure. So, so I, I wonder if it was one of the clerks or was it... Jenny Thomas, Clarence oh, Thomas's wife, who's clearly willing, has shown a willingness as the as the January sixth committee has has revealed mm. to sort of transgress boundaries, um, or and that's if it came from the right. So the, there are two theories on this. One is that if it came from the right, then the reason they leaked it was to shore up to make it impossible for one of the five to change their votes or to, to uh, moderate their language somewhat. Mm. Uh, so because th the, the public pressure on them from their supporters would be such that it would be very difficult to do. That's, that's the one theory. So if it's Ginny Thomas, then that's the argument. If it's somebody on the left of the court, somebody or, or who's in the minority on this decision, the argument is, well, it's actually going to gin up Democrats who look like they're headed for a beating or a shellacking mm. to quote 
President Obama in November, and that this might be the thing that will really energize their base. And certainly the re response of people across the country in the past few days would suggest that might well be the case. And so that maybe it was somebody in the minority, um, in this case, the Democratic minority, Democratic leaning minority on the court that, that has leaked it. Yeah. The one person we know didn't leak it is John Roberts. Yes, because yes. John Roberts is a institutionalist. He believes in the court. This is terrible for the Supreme Court and, and terrible for Roberts's vision of the Supreme Court. And, and he's announced a, an investigation into the, the, the to try to ascertain who, who leaked it. Um, although it could be in a you know be, a deep fake. He really he, did. He, he, yes, <laughs> one. Could. Who do you think leaked it? I, I don't know. The right. I don't. I mean, in some ways, I, I, it, it, it the, does, the leak doesn't matter as much as obviously the decision does. It's not the first time that things have leaked from the Supreme Court. Yeah, they, so they, so they, so they, there's that. a number of, of times when when decisions have been leaked uh, prior to, to their announcement. Um, the Roe versus Wade decision leaked before. Really? Yeah. So and that happened in a fascinating way. So it leaked. Uh, to, so that was the Roe uh, came down in in January of 1973. A clerk uh, shared the news with a Time Magazine reporter. Time Magazine, of course, is a weekly publication. And the issue was scheduled to come out after the decision was made. So, you know, they're going to have this story, you know, this bit in, in Time Magazine about mentioning the case that the decision has been made, but, the, you know, they printed it before. There was a slight delay when they announced the decision. And so the Time Magazine issue came out the morning that the decision was made so you know hours before the decision came out and so that's less of a leak and more of a kind of mishap well you know but there was uh chief justice warren Berger was very angry about this and he tried to find the leaker uh, because it was one of the clerks who did it um and the the, the guy leaked a guy named larry hammond he admitted to uh his boss justice powell uh it's like, oh, actually, I did that. I leaked that to Time Magazine, and Powell told Justice Berger, and 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 turns out they didn't punish him for it. But but that case leaked. Um, there's a case in a series of cases in 1919 uh, that turned out that were leaked to Wall Street investors, and they were also leaked by a clerk, a guy named Ashton Embry who in 1919 resigns the clerkship of the Supreme Court because he says, actually, I'm really more interested in becoming a baker. <laughs> I'm going to spend more time with my baking uh, than, than this whole lawyer stuff. It turns out he had been leaking material, and this is obviously a time when there's lots of antitrust legislation or antitrust cases and monopoly and, and business regulation things. And so he was leaking all that information to Wall Street investors so they could then buy or sell stocks appropriately. Um, there are a couple of cases, there's a bunch of cases in the 19th century where, where decisions get leaked early, uh, to the New York Tribune in particular, who seemed to have a, a inside with, the, with the court, um, you know, like they published the Dred Scott decision before the Dred Scott decision is announced. There are lots of cases of, and I'm not sure whether this is a, a leak in the same way, cause it's not a leak to, to, to the press or people trying to, to benefit from it. There's lots of cases of members of the court announcing what decisions are, or telling people in the White House what the decisions are going to be beforehand. So they can say, you know, be ready. Next week we're going to announce that this policy is unconstitutional or that decision is going to happen so that the White House can be prepared appropriately. 
And sometimes that's done by, with the consent of the rest of the court, sometimes that's done sort of, you know, under the table. So, all that being said, this does seem to be a leak of a different kind of quality and nature. I mean, they, there's been a lot of talk in the past three days, much of it a historical saying, this mm. has never happened before. Uh, but to some extent in the modern history of the court, it hasn't really happened before, has it? Well, um, I mean, I think it, it you know, seeing, seeing a draft opinion, I think is is, is un unprecedented because usually we don't see the sausage getting made, right? There, there are very few, I mean, there's a couple of cases where people have done sort of journalistic investigations after the fact where we learn more about decisions and, and sort of the process that goes in behind the scenes you know, there was there was an article in two thousand and four that went tried to do go behind the scenes in the two thousand uh, Bush Gore debate. What happened in the court there? Uh, you know, Bob Woodward wrote a book about the court where he sort of goes into the you know. But obviously, that's sort of much more in retrospect. Um, but we get very few insights into the sort of machinations of the court, and the members of the court are usually very reticent to to discuss differences of opinions that they have with other justices and the kinds of debates that go into um, and, and you know, drafts and those kinds of fights. I've, I've got a question, David, that I ought to know the answer to, and I don't, and uh, maybe you will. Do they keep the drafts? I mean, are these in the archives somewhere, in the, either the Supreme Court's archives or the National Archives? Are, they, are there drafts of the decisions? I mean, they're, clearly there are drafts, drafts of the, of the decisions, decisions but, but, but what happens to them? That's a really good question. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I imagine, actually, I know that there are drafts of early opinions that are in archives for, from former justices that have retired and deposited their papers. Um, but in terms of the modern court and what's going to happen uh, with those drafts, I, that I do not know. That's a good question. Um, you know, there were people who said, well, maybe, you know, they should find the, there have been some people in, in the past few days, I mean, we'd find the leaker and prosecute him. You know, that this is sort of a leak like the Pentagon Papers. You need to find the, the person who was... But these are not these no. are not classified documents. These That's are right. just these are just drafts of things. And they, they have no... There's no crime that's been committed here, at least as far as I can ascertain. Um, whereas the Pentagon Papers, there was a crime that was committed right, in the... Right, right. But, uh, and, and, yeah, but as you say, these aren't classified and... and out. You know, it's somebody leaking something that was going to be made public next month. If a the version of it, a version of it would be, and I suspect the substance of it will be largely unchanged. I don't know, but uh, so so moving away from the leak to the substance mm. of the decision, at least as outlined by Alito. Uh, what's I mean, I've got a number of questions for you, but what you know, can can you briefly sum up what Alito's saying? Okay, I well, I can I can briefly sum it up and and quote some of. The draft opinion, um, which is a fascinating read. If you haven't read it, it's it's, it's worth spending some time to picking apart his, his logic. He says the right to abortion uh, is not quote deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, and that Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally these are his words. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has damaging consequences. And so it, um, you know overturns Roe, it overturns the subsequent decision in Casey, it says they were fundamentally flawed from the beginning. Um, so this turns on an interpretation of history, uh, as Supreme Court decisions mm. often do in the past. One thing that's come up in the past few days, David, a lot, mm. 
in the commentary on this is um, lots of people have mentioned the connection between this decision and the 14th Amendment and the importance of the 14th Amendment. Many of our listeners will be familiar with the 14th Amendment, but not all of them will. So, uh, and the 14th Amendment comes from your period of, of American history. So can you briefly sum up the 14th Amendment? I realize that's, <laughs> that's like saying, can you briefly sum up the Constitution? Uh, yes. But give a brief summary of the 14th Amendment and then explain what its, what its connection to this this issue is. Okay. Uh, so, briefly yeah. do all that. And I'm right. going to go and take a nap. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so... I'm going to be very succinct here. Yeah, I'm going to try to fail. All right. So there are three amendments that are passed by the, the Congress in, during Reconstruction. There's the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery. That's relatively straightforward. I mean, it's complicated, but also relatively straightforward. There's the 15th Amendment, which is about voting. You can't deny the right to vote based on, on, on race or previous condition of, of servitude. Those are probably straightforward. The 14th Amendment that comes between them is a much more complicated amendment and does a number of different things. Um, it's the 14th Amendment that grants birthright citizenship. So it makes African-Americans who were enslaved, it makes them into citizens. It says if you're born in the United States you are, or naturalized, you are a citizen of the United States. So it has citizenship. It has questions to do with uh, the debt from the Civil War. It deals with that. It has questions to deal with um, eligibility to hold office if you participated in a rebellion against the government. So there's a bit in the 14th Amendment about that that actually has been working its way through the courts uh, recently with um, uh, certain members of Congress who, who supported the, the insurrection on, on the 6th of January. The key parts of the 14th Amendment for this debate are, are, are the sections of the 14th Amendment that are about due process and equal protection. And these are the sections of the 14th Amendment that have been the most important Important in terms of expanding the rights that Americans have in the 20th century. And so some of these were, were, were to the specifics of the 14th Amendment was trying to counterbalance things like the, the black codes that were passed in the aftermath of the Civil War, trying to create the, the framework for civil rights for African Americans in the aftermath of, of emancipation. Uh, but the Due Process Clause and Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment has been phenomenally important in the 20th century in, in all kinds of areas about personal and, and civil liberties. So they, they are the framework for most of, uh, well, starting with things like in the Brown versus Board of Education decision that, that is rooted in equal protection and what equal protection means. If we're thinking about the kinds of rights that defendants have in uh, court and it's all the decisions made by the Warren court in the 50s and 60s, all of that comes from the 14th Amendment. So you're, you're, you're up from things like excluding evidence that it was obtained illegally uh, to things like the Miranda rights, um, your right to an attorney, all of these kinds of things come from the 14th Amendment. And there's a um, period uh, of uh, in, in between in the 1950s and 1960s in which the Supreme Court looks and reads the 14th Amendment in a fairly expansive way and sort of recognizes that there are a number of rights that were embedded in the 14th Amendment uh, that really become much more prominent under um, the Warren Court and then later by the uh, Berger Court. Um, 
and among those rights that that becomes that comes out of the Fourteenth Amendment that, that is recognized uh, is the uh, right to privacy, and that becomes very important in a, in a case called Griswold versus Connecticut, which is a, where where this sort of idea of a right to privacy in the Fourteenth Amendment comes from. Um, that case involved um, a state prohibition on birth control, and the court said, "Look, there is people have a." A, a expectation and a right to privacy for making personal decisions about uh, their their reproduction and their access to birth control. So they struck down um, this Connecticut law that had dated from the uh, mid nineteenth century. And so that's sort of where the how the Fourteenth Amendment connects to to this particular case is Griswold becomes the framework uh, in this right to privacy that is used in Roe versus Wade. It's also the framework that is applied in lots of other cases. Um, so if we think about the, you know, the gay marriage decision in Obergefell, that's built upon this right to privacy in, in uh, Griswold. Uh, if we're thinking about uh, you know, other, other sort of claims to, to, to sort of personal integrity, a lot of those are also rooted in this, this, this legal tradition. Um, one of the things that, that Vice President Harris said earlier this week in response to, to this, this leaked opinion is she thinks that actually the target is not just abortion rights, but in fact, Griswold versus Connecticut. And she mentioned that specifically in a speech on Tuesday. She said actually what the, she says Republicans want to take us to a time before Roe versus Wade, back to a time before Obergefell and Hodges, back to a time before Griswold versus Connecticut. So a very different sort of legal framework where privacy is not something that is protected under the 14th Amendment. Although Alito said in his draft decision that this only applies to Roe versus Wade and no other rights and no other decisions should be, that this shouldn't be read as having implications for any of those. Should we take him at his word? No. Can we take him at his word? I, I would not. And the reason why I would not take him at his word is in part because, you know, if you, if you go back and watch the, the confirmation hearings for Alito or for Gorsuch or for Kavanaugh or for Barrett or for pretty much any justice recently, they all say stare decisis, this, the idea that the court should not overturn previous decisions unless absolutely necessary. They all say this is very important. They say, you know, Roe versus Wade is an important precedent. Some of them, one of them called it a super precedent. Um, but the legal logic embedded in, in this draft decision, at least my reading of it, you know, does really strike down at the, not only the road decision, but, but also the kinds of things that are in Griswold. Um, that's, that's my reading of it. I don't, I mean, some of the people who, who voted to confirm uh, some of the recent Supreme Court justices say, oh, but they told us in, well, in their confirmation hearings they wouldn't do this. Clearly, that's not, not, not something they're going to be held. Susan to. Collins is very concerned. She's very concerned. She's been very concerned for a while. I wonder if she'll actually do anything. No, uh, she won't. Well, um, what can be done? I mean, with this constitutional system, um, you know, if this decision comes down. Yes. And, uh, you know, well, first of all, what will. Let me back up. Hmm. If this decision go, comes down next month as expected, yes, um, notwithstanding the actual text of the of the decision itself, let's not worry as much about that. 
uh, I want to play devil's advocate here. So the argument of supporters of this decision seems to be, well, then this decision will revert to the states. What's wrong with that? Um, what's wrong with that is then we will end up with probably 26 states, um, maybe more, maybe less, in which abortion is either totally illegal or, or largely inaccessible. And there's obviously also many states right now where it's already largely inaccessible, um, but that will become um, access to, to abortion and, and, and control over bodily integrity will be uh, denied to people in more than half of, of the states in the union. That's the problem with it. Um, you know, if you see uh, control over one's body as a fundamental human right, um, then, 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 then this is uh, heading in a very strange direction. But a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I drove through four states in one day. So you were uh, in New England, though. No, no, I was actually not. Anyway, okay, but <laughs> it doesn't <sorry>. matter. <laughs> but my point being, you can cross state lines freely, or one can. So, and again, this isn't necessarily my position. position. So okay, I want to make you're, that you're, clear. Yeah. But, I'm, you know, so, so you're right. A subset, approximately half the states will likely either restrict mm. or completely prohibit abortion, or largely prohibit abortion mm. as a result of this decision. But but why can't? Um, People who want to access reproductive rights and and, and uh, access abortion go to a different state. Okay, so the answer is one. You know, depending on where you live, it's going to be, you know, several days drive to the nearest abortion clinic. Yes, not all states are the same, same size. size, right? <laughs> um, you know, when I lived in North Dakota, I lived not far from the only abortion clinic in the state, and North Dakota is a big state. Driving across there, you know, it's. Uh, it's a five-hour drive, um, and the clinic was only open a few days a week. Um, you know, and if you can imagine, if you look at the map, there's going to be large sections of the country where that's going to be the case, which means that you can end up with a situation that's actually going to be not that dissimilar to what things were like before Roe versus Wade, in which if you were wealthy enough and you had access and privilege, you could get access to abortion care. Um, that there were doctors before Roe versus Wade who would perform it illegally for the right amount of money, um, or you could travel to places where it was legal and accessible, which means that there would be a large section of people for whom their their personal circumstances, their their financial circumstances, their family circumstances would make that impossible and, and, and effectively make it you know inaccessible. Um, as it already is in many places. So I think there's a, a huge, you know, uh, the, the, the who would have access to abortion would be, be, be profoundly uh, constrained by, by issues of class and race and all that kinds of things. Right. Now, That's, I was looking at a um, map in the paper the other day of where abortion would be likely, uh, where abortion would likely be made illegal in the United States hmm. if, if this decision comes through. And I was struck by the kind of geographic patterns that emerge. So, so you're basic. You're mainly talking about a kind of swath, a, a very large crescent of states extending from the southeast, then up through um, the plains and the mountain west to, to a large extent, mm. I mean, and well, also parts of the Midwest. <laughs> 
It's a lot of states. But what struck me was, th I was thinking, and I want to ask you this, David, as an expert on the 19th century, I was reminded of those pre-civil, those antebellum maps of the United States, which you know you, we see in our textbooks mm. and have taught ourselves, uh, where you have this division into free and slave states. And it's not the same issue, but I thought, well, there's a clear geographic pattern here that where we have states that are divided over what many of their residents believe is a fundamentally moral issue where they've taken a f fundamentally different positions on this issue. Mm. And I don't know the solution to this, but I thought, wow, this looks like the 1850s. Is that fair? The similarity, uh, I think, in as much as is, is, you know, abortion like slavery is, 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 um, it's a very hard issue for parties on either side to compromise on, right? You can't have sort of abortion or sort of slavery, um, or at least it's very hard to think about how to sort of make that work. And, uh, you know, and so it is something that is both a moral issue, it's something people who are on one side of the issue believe very strongly uh, about and are willing to, to fight for it, both on, in the courts and in legislatures and putting their bodies on the line. Um, you know, the, the violence that's been attached to, um, you know, att attacking abortion clinics over the past 45 years, um, you know, is, you know, suggests, you know, the extent to which pe people, you know, see this not just as a political issue, but something that they're, that they're willing to, you know, act on. Um, Again, well, that goes to the 1850s. Yeah, it's to be a little sure. bit like leading Kansas. Yes. Um, you know, and it's also, I think, for many people, it's a single, you know, uh, issue, uh, you know, uh, that th that overrides all other political concerns for some people, right? In, in the same way that that for, um, you know, in the eighteen fifties, people who were actively anti-slavery or actively pro-slavery, that was the only political issue that that mattered. That everything else was sort of secondary. And I think for many voters. Today, that there's a segment for whom that is also the case, you know, for many voters, for instance, who supported President Trump, you know, they said, "Look, I, we don't, I don't necessarily agree with him on any number of, of personal and and political issues, but he's anti-abortion, and therefore I will vote for him because he's going to be the vehicle for this thing that I want." And that petition's been vindicated, in the sense that those three justices that that. Trump got, and whether they got them uh, legitimately or not, not is yes. something another discussion. But the three justices that Trump appointed are making up the are making the difference here. Oh, well, they're the they're, they're, they are the majority yeah. of the the majority, if if that makes any sense. Um, you know, and so this is uh, one of the intriguing things about all this is, of course, is actually public opinion on abortion hasn't actually changed very much. If you look at polling data. Uh, about abortion, going back to Roe versus Wade till today, the the polls don't change in in meaningful ways. The there's a percentage of Americans who are in favor of, of making abortion illegal. There's a percentage of people who are in favor of of widespread abortion access. Then there's a segment of people who are you know adopting some middle position where abortion is legal in some situations and not in in others. Um, the position that um, Roe versus Wade should be overturned 
is not a very popular opinion. Only 28% of Americans in a poll done last week favor overturning Roe versus Wade completely. And interestingly, in the past few days, we've seen very little celebration or triumphalism from Republicans, including Mitch McConnell the other day, who was asked about this, and mm. he changed the subject effectively, said, yeah. we need to find the leaker. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, you know, and so although they've been engaged in a very successful campaign over the past 40 years, mm. um, the opponents of abortion, uh, a very successful political and legal campaign to get to this moment, mm. th- at least their political allies in Congress and at the national level have been pretty quiet on, uh, in the past couple of days. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think there's a, on, on a political level, I think there are some people who who are have been pushing against Roe versus Wade because they, they think it's morally wrong and they want abortion to be legal. But I think for many Republicans, they recognize that running against abortion is a winning political strategy for them. I but think that was Trump's Trump, position. Trump doesn't care one way or the other, really, except that it, it, it won in votes. I would... Agree with that, but it's hard to get inside his head, and I don't really want to try. Um, you know, I think they're the 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 dog that caught the car, though. I yeah. think you know, that that the the pursuit of the, the campaign against abortion rights, I think, was a winning issue for Republicans. Now that they've apparently won, and and, and that seems to be the the outcome. Now there are some things that could happen, um, but at least now that they seem to have won in the Supreme Court, you know that they can't run on that anymore other than sort of defending the status quo, which is a less uh, persuasive get-out-the-vote technique. And they'll have to defend it in the face of, as you say, a, a majority that opposes it. Right. Now, there are things that could happen between now and when this decision comes out. Congress could act. Part of what Alito mentions in his decision is, look, Congress hasn't said anything about this. We're basing this on overturning a previous Supreme Court decision. If Congress said, actually, look, there's an affirmative right to abortion, and we are rooting that in the 14th Amendment, we're spelling that out, um, that would be much harder for the court to strike down. It's not impossible if they could strike it down, but they could create a legal framework for defending abortion rights on the national level. But what are the chances of that, given the um, the, the current uh, balance of the Senate? Uh, uh, not very good, but on the other, you know, cinema might be able to, you know, thinking about the two Democrats who are the, 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 the sticklers on, on the filibuster, cinema could probably, I don't know, I don't want her to know about her, but she's more likely... Um, than Jim Manchin to to shift on this particular Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin thank you um, to shift on this particular issue, but at least that's a a possible way that things could turn out differently. At least that's my reading of the the tea leaves. But I think you're right. the The filibuster is going to be a a problem um, in this as well. I mean, one of the things some people have pointed out is, and this is Alito says in the in the uh, uh, opinion that abortion isn't in the Constitution. Well, neither is the filibuster. Um, so uh, we we will see how all this plays out. Because I think there's going to be there's a potential at least for substantial political action to happen relatively quickly after not a whole lot of action in in recent years. Do you think that the Democrats and Republicans will switch sides on this issue? Not in terms of their positions, but. If, if Roe is struck down, does this then become a, the animating issue or a key animating issue to mobilize Democratic voters 
in the decades ahead in the same way that this, that, that this was an incredibly has been an incredibly powerful and potent issue for Republicans uh, in the past four decades. That's a definite possibility. I think that's, you know, I think this is an issue the Democrats could, could win on um, in as much as, as this is, you know, as, as the polling suggests, most Americans favor some degree of abortion rights for people. I mean, one of the things that's interesting that's happened with the anti-abortion movement in recent years is the anti-abortion movement has gotten increasingly more conservative. You know, if you look at sort of anti-abortion rhetoric in the 80s, they often said, look, we oppose, abor- we oppose elective abortions. Of course, we, we, we won't, we'll, we'll protect the right to abortion for people who, for cases of rape and incest. And there were lots of sort of moderate anti-abortion positions. And one of the things I think that's happened, and this has only really been in the past decade, is that, that there's been increasing calls, as this opinion suggests, that say, no, there should be no... Um, exceptions for for rape or incest or or for uh, you know uh, conditions where the health of the mother is endangered. Uh, so well, I think that, I, that's a radicalization of it that I think is 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 quite profound. Which has happened in almost every area of American politics on almost every issue. The 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 the, the positions have become more radical. I think to be sure. Um, but right. Well, then we will see what happens next month. And there'll be a raft of Supreme Court decisions. Yes. They usually come down in the summer, in June, right before the session ends. Yeah, well, the Supreme Court, you know, the, the, this case has attracted a lot of attention, but there's been some other recent decisions by the Supreme Court that are also, um, and, and cases heard, this this particular docket is full of really interesting, and I say that interesting in the as a historian, or potentially, you know, earth-shattering kinds of decisions about religious rights, about the rights of the state. Um, you know, for a while, the court was holding off on addressing really big issues, in part because, you know, there was clearly some some transition happening in the court. But now with this new slate of, of Trump justices, uh, they are taking on some cases that they would previously uh, were, were keeping at arm's length. Well, we might be in a very interesting moment. Well, we are in a very interesting moment not just for the country, but for the court itself, because, mm. you know, we have a minoritarian system <laughs> in place in the sense that the majority of the Supreme Court now were nominated by presidents who were elected by a minority of the people, yeah. <laughs> owing to quirks in the electoral college system, and were whose, whose nominations were approved by senators from... Uh, who who represent a minority of the American population because of the 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 uh, way the population is is scattered uh, in the United States, making decisions which will have widespread ramifications as they as Supreme Court decisions often do, for the entire country, but I think that there's a real danger, and I know John Roberts is afraid of this that one of this will come at the cost of the legitimacy of the court itself. In the, in the eyes of the American people. Now, where that goes and what the American people can do about that, I don't know. I yeah. don't know. I don't know where, where what, the, what, what, you know, how that ends. But what, what we have is an increasingly radical court that's making, and its radicalism is flying in the face of the views of the majority of the American people. 
yeah. making these decisions, and that's that may well cause a crisis for what has historically been seen as the most stable of the three branches of government in the United States. Well, it's the most stable in part because the people wanted to have life tenure, and the justices are, you know, who are in this this five person majority, they're going to be on the court, assuming that they stay in good health for the next. 20, 30 years, some of them. Yes. So, but so, Alito is 72, I think. Clarence Thomas is 73. Three. They're not in good health. Yes. Um, but Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, uh, and, and Barrett will be there yeah. for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, and and I think you're right that, you know, when we teach the, you know, when, when American sort of government is taught to, to elementary school students, you know, we talk about checks and balances. The, the checks on the Supreme Court are pretty limited. Yep. Um, you know, you can impeach people, but impeaching them is hard. Um, you know, some people have floated that in the past week, but it's not going to happen. Um, you know, you can appoint new people to the court, but you got to either wait until one of them retires or dies or expand the size of the court. And, and, and uh, you know, um, all of those don't seem like they're, they're great solutions to this particular uh uh, situation. So, so the court is a very, very powerful institution with very limited kind of restraints upon it, um, and it claims to be apolitical. There's all the stuff about justices calling balls and strikes that we've heard in confirmation hearings, but uh, this opinion doesn't read like a calling of balls and strikes to me. But we will see, and we will obviously have to revisit this. Uh, this is a huge topic and a huge case, and, and we will have to sort of revisit this in. in future episodes. Right. Uh, time for last drops, Frank. Let's, uh, let's... I want to remind people about next week's Fennel Lecture here at the University of Edinburgh. Okay. Marlene, Marlena Doubt from the University of Virginia will be giving a lecture uh, on the Kingdom of Haiti and the Age of Revolutions next Thursday, the 12th of May at uh, 5.15 in St. Cecilia's Hall here mm -hmm. in Edinburgh at the University. It's a beautiful venue, uh, among other things. And uh, we're very excited to have Marlene coming. And you can attend in person if you're in town, and we, we would urge you to do so. David will share the link in the, yes. in the show notes. Uh, but you can also stream it online if you're further afield. So please join us next Thursday, May 12th, for Marlena Doubt's Fennel Lecture, The Kingdom of Haiti and the Age of Revolutions. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm really looking forward to doing it in person, because I think you know in-person events... There, there's some, you know, as much as Zoom events are great, um, I'm really looking forward to, to, I think I'm ready for an in-person kind of thing. Absolutely. And there's a reception afterwards, so you oh, hey. if you go in person. <laughs> hear that, listeners, you know, come, 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 uh, hear a lecture. And, and and I think he only had one king? So this may be... We the, will find, find out. out. Yeah, okay. This is maybe so, outside so, record. David, what's yours? Uh, so I want to recommend, also, this is, I guess, a, a more for locals than for people uh, listening further afield. There's a great exhibit um, at the National Museum of Scotland, not far from uh, where the Fennel Lecture is going to be, um, on, on, on Audubon and Audubon's uh, artistic depiction of, of you know, birds of, Amer of North America. Um, and they've got some... Well, what's the Scottish link there? The Scot well, I knew about Audubon. I, I, I've actually written about it, a bit about Audubon. But one thing I didn't know is he actually has a Scottish link and an Edinburgh link. That, really? So, you know, he's actually, there's going to be a lecture. He was born in Haiti. Yes, I knew Yes, that. Uh, and his family leaves during the Haitian Revolution for, for obvious reasons. Um, comes to the United States, becomes a, a naturalist, 
draws lots of pictures of birds. Um, but has difficulty getting them published. He comes to Edinburgh, and uh, Edinburgh, in, in, in the exhibit they, they outline this, was important in terms of the, the publication history of, 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 of Bert, the Birds of America. And um, you, know, you can go see the exhibit and they'll, they'll flesh out the story. Uh, but he was here for like five, five or six weeks and spends time at the university and, and, and gets involved in some of the sort of naturalist uh, sort of science here uh, then. So, so uh, And he really wanted to meet Walter Scott. Right. And he did. And Walter Scott, and he had his picture done, and he, so there's a painting of him that was done when he was here. Uh, and they have, you know, and, and as it was, was... Who did the painting? Do you know? It's a, it, it was a famous Scottish artist whose name now escapes me, but it was but it was one of the cases where, you know, he, they had him dress in, in the kind of clothes he would have worn for going and observing birds. So he's got this, you know, fur coat thing on. Um uh, so this is a, a really interesting, you know, it's a small exhibit, but it closes this Sunday. So if, so if you are local listening to this now, go make your way to the National uh, so Museum of So today is Scotland. Thursday, May 5th, 5th. so you so better go, go soon. Go, it's by May 8th, I think is the day it's closing. So so go now uh, while you can. Uh, so it's a great, great little exhibit, you know, and it's uh, definitely worth your time. Excellent. Great. Great, David. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.